Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are our top stories. The first American spacecraft to land on the moon in over 50 years. The feat achieved by the private sector for the first time ever. But it wasn't all smooth sailing. A last-minute glitch threatened to doom a safe touchdown. The U.S. and the U.K. announced over 500 new sanctions on entities affiliated with Russia in the wake of the death of a jailed opposition leader and as the invasion of Ukraine approaches its third year. Presidential candidate Nikki Haley says the U.S. can do better than two 80-year-old candidates. That's as she makes a last push in South Carolina to rally support ahead of tomorrow's primary. Three clinics in Alabama are pausing in vitro fertilization after the state's Supreme Court ruled that frozen embryos are children. How will the decision affect families and the future of fertility treatments? Our guest weighs in. San Francisco voters will decide if drug screenings are necessary for welfare benefits. The mayor is trying to tackle the city's drug crisis but faces opposition. David Lamb joins us to discuss. Google puts Gemini's ability to generate images on pause for now. The AI chatbot has been accused of racial bias. A feathered friendship in action. A sighted penguin helps his visually impaired friend during mealtime every day. The heartwarming story. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome everyone and happy Friday. Today is February 23rd. I'm ready for some space exploration. Oh yeah, me too. And that's in today's top news. The first U.S. moon landing since 1972. A spacecraft built and flown by Texas-based company Intuitive Machines landed near the south pole of the moon yesterday evening. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on the lunar touchdown, the first ever achieved by the private sector. The six-legged robot lander, dubbed Odysseus, touched down at around 6.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Today, for the first time in more than a half century, the U.S. has returned to the moon. Ignition and liftoff. The landing, one day after the spacecraft reached lunar orbit and a week after its launch from Florida, was confirmed by signals beamed back nearly 240,000 miles to mission control. Mission Director Tim Crane reacts. What we can confirm, without a doubt, is our equipment is on the surface of the moon and we are transmitting. Communication with the vehicle took several minutes to re-establish, and the initial signal was faint, leaving mission control uncertain as to the precise condition and position of the lander. The spacecraft was not designed to provide live video of the event. Touchdown came after an 11th hour glitch with the spacecraft's autonomous navigation system that required engineers on the ground to employ a workaround solution. They had to deploy an experimental instrument from NASA, which was already on board. Three, two, one, engine ignition. Odysseus lifted off on February 15th atop a two-stage Falcon 9 rocket flown by Elon Musk's SpaceX. NASA Administrator Bill Nelson called Odysseus taking the moon a triumph. 
Congratulations to everyone involved in this great and daring quest at Intuitive Machines, SpaceX, and right here at NASA. The vehicle is carrying a suite of scientific instruments and technology demonstrations for NASA and several commercial customers. The equipment is designed to operate for seven days on solar energy before the sun sets over the polar landing site. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Another one for the history books. First commercial soft landing on the moon ever. Yeah, pretty exciting stuff. And the device that NASA used to help that soft landing, it just looks like a three-eyed robot with some tinfoil over it, but it got the job done. It actually yeah. uses the police radar type technology. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Wow, no way. All right. Um, well, we are moving on, and of course, we have some political news to get to today as well. We're heading to Russia, which will be hit with more sanctions today as a war in Ukraine enters its third year and in the wake of Alexei Navalny's death. The U.S. is seeking to hold Russia responsible for these developments. It announced actions yesterday taken in partnership with other countries. The Deputy Treasury Secretary said the U.S. will impose sanctions on over 500 targets today. The package covers elements linked to Moscow's defense industrial base and sources of revenue for the Russian economy that power its war machine. On the same day, the U.K. said they'll sanction more than 50 individuals and entities to put economic pressure on Russia. The UK's foreign secretary said the sanctions are, quote, starving Putin of the resources he desperately needs. The European Union on Wednesday approved its own package of sweeping sanctions, banning nearly 200 entities and individuals accused of aiding Moscow. Four people have been charged in transporting suspected Iranian-made weapons on a vessel that was intercepted by U.S. forces in the Arabian Sea last month. This is the same operation in which two Navy SEALs were killed. A criminal complaint unsealed yesterday alleges that four people with Pakistani ID cards were transporting missile components for the type of weapons used by Houthis rebels. U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland pledged to use the full authority of the Justice Department to, quote, hold accountable those who facilitate the flow of weapons from Iran to Houthi forces. Muhammad Palawan is facing the bulk of the charges. Three others were also charged with providing false information. U.S. officials said Navy SEAL Christopher Chambers slipped and fell while trying to board the intercepted boat on January 11th. Another SEAL, Nathan Gage Ingram, dove in after him. Both were killed in the operation. And just a quick correction on that. They weren't actually killed, according to officials. They just died in action. Right. Yeah. So we have more updates on the death of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. His mother is accusing Russian authorities of wanting a secret funeral. The mother said on social media that authorities are blackmailing her to accept a secret burial for Navalny. This would potentially prevent public mourning for the opposition leader. She says she was brought to a morgue and saw Navalny's body. The mother accused authorities of setting conditions for where, when, and how Navalny should be buried, but refused adding that they're now threatening to do something with Navalny's body. Entity couldn't independently verify her allegations. Navalny died last week while serving a prison sentence at an Arctic penal colony. Russian authorities said Navalny died of natural causes, but his widow says she believes Navalny was killed. Yesterday, President Biden met with Navalny's widow and daughter in San Francisco 
and offered condolences to the family. And turning now to the Israel-Hamas war, an alleged United Nations employee was seen in a video participating in the October 7th massacre. Entity's Jason Perry has the war update and a warning this report contains footage that some viewers may find disturbing. Tensions have been high in Israel since the massacre of October 7th. In this disturbing video taken on that tragic day, an alleged employee of the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, or UNRWA, is wearing all black and he helps put the body of a deceased Israeli man into the back of this vehicle. The mother of the deceased man spoke at a news conference on Wednesday. Are there any other hostages held by UN employees, even as we're speaking right now? Where is my son? We reached out to UNRWA for comment and they told NTD there is an investigation underway and that Israeli authorities have not presented UNRWA with any evidence. This comes as Israeli officials have criticized the United Nations for not addressing reports of the sexual violence that took place during the massacre of October 7th. The Association of Rape Crisis Centers in Israel released a report on Wednesday which alleges systematic sexual abuse during that terrorist attack. What we learned, that this was an intentional way of behavior. In all of the crime scenes, in all the terrorist scenes that have happened, this systematic abuse, sadistic abuse, brutal abuse of women, children and men happened. And on Thursday, Israel's prime minister visited troops in northern Israel. He said their goal is to return the displaced Israelis to their homes in the north. In order to bring back the residents, we need to bring back the feeling of security. We will achieve it in one of two ways by military means, if required, in a political way, if possible. But in any case, Hezbollah should understand we will restore security. Across Israel's northern border in Lebanon, more than 200 people, most of them Hezbollah terrorists, have been killed since the fighting began after October 7th. Jason Perry, NTD News. And the Saturday marks two years since the start of Russia's war in Ukraine. We bring you up to speed on the major events of the last two years. In the days prior to February 24th, 2022, uncertainty was in the air. Even as Russian troops massed along the border, many Ukrainians believed it was a bluff. Everyone is worried now, everyone is worried, but I don't think there will be a full-scale offensive. I don't think they will reach Kiev for sure. Then the bombshell. Russian President Vladimir Putin announced a special military operation to demilitarize Ukraine. Russia had invaded Ukraine. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky addressed his nation and called on support from allies. A minute ago, I had a phone call with President Biden. The United States of America has already started to gather international support. The army is working. The whole security and defense sector is working. The U.S. and other Western countries ramped up their sanctions against Russia. Now, it's going to be up to President Putin to decide, ultimately, how much cost he's willing to bear. Over the next few weeks, Russia hit Ukraine with its full force. One after another, Russia captured Ukrainian towns until they were almost upon Kyiv. Footage from Ukraine's western border from that time shows thousands of civilians fleeing the country. In March 2022 alone, President Biden announced nearly $1 billion in security aid to Ukraine. As the war dragged on, it became clear taking Ukraine would not be easy for Russia. 
After repelling the initial Russian invasion, Ukraine launched a counteroffensive in August 2022, taking back many of the villages in the south that Russia had captured. On September 21, 2022, Putin announced the partial military draft for Russian citizens, the first such mobilization since World War II, signaling a major escalation in the war. Protesters demonstrated against the draft in various parts of the country, met by police crackdowns. The European Parliament declared Russia a state sponsor of terrorism. The Biden administration announced an additional $400 million in military aid. Ukrainian troops entered the city of Kherson, bringing it back into Ukrainian control for the first time since March. As 2023 rolled around, fighting seemed to be at a stalemate. For months, Ukraine and Russia both tried to gain ground. In early June, Ukraine launched another major counteroffensive. Then a crisis for Russia. Yevgeny Prigozhin, the leader of the Russian mercenary Wagner Group, started criticizing the Russian leadership. On June 23, he led an armed rebellion against the Kremlin. They got as far as 200 miles from Moscow. Putin subdued the rebellion by the next day. Prigozhin was promised safe passage to Belarus. Exactly two months later, Prigozhin and other senior Wagner leaders were killed in a plane crash. On August 24th, Ukraine's military conducted an operation into Crimea. The peninsula had been under Russian control since 2014. Russia said they were repelling drone attacks around the country. But by November, the conflict appeared to be in another stalemate. Russia was once again shelling Kherson, which had been back in Kyiv's control for barely a year. As winter came around, Russia made another push into Ukraine. The new year 2024 saw strikes on Ukrainian cities, killing six and injuring hundreds. In the US, aid to Ukraine started to run dry. Even now, Congress is in a stalemate of its own over more military assistance to Ukraine. Last week, one of Putin's biggest critics, Alexei Navalny, died in a Russian prison. Many blamed Putin for his death. For now, the war shows no signs of stopping. The conflict has claimed the lives of an estimated half a million people. A protracted battle, no doubt, and there's serious questions that Europe is faced with as to how they can sustain that very heavy support financially for Ukraine. That's right. As of now, there is no end in sight, and of course, to very difficult years for those that have to fight the war. But we're moving on back to America. Former President Trump is asking a federal judge to dismiss his Mar-a-Lago classified documents case. Trump's legal team filed four motions last night. Defense attorneys argued Trump is protected by presidential immunity and that the charges in special counsel lack legitimacy. Trump's former property manager at Mar-a-Lago is also asking a judge to dismiss charges Entities Jeremy Sandberg has the latest in Trump's legal cases. Defense attorneys accused Attorney General Merrick Garland of appointing special counsel Jack Smith improperly. Trump's team argues the appointment clause of the Constitution does not afford an attorney general the power to appoint without Senate confirmation, quote, a private citizen and like-minded political ally to wield the prosecutorial power of the U.S. Lawyers for Trump's former property manager, Carlos de Oliveira, asked the judge Thursday to dismiss charges against him, claiming their client did not knowingly obstruct justice when he helped move boxes at Mar-a-Lago. His attorneys in a court filing say he didn't know what was in the boxes or that the Justice Department was investigating. Meanwhile, the judge overseeing the $355 million civil fraud case has denied Trump's request to delay judgment for a month. Judge Engerin stated in an email Thursday, Trump's lawyers had failed to explain, much less justify, any basis for a stay and wrote, I am confident that the appellate division will protect your appellate rights. Once the judgment is entered, we'll start a 30-day clock for Trump to appeal. Trump will need to put up cash or post bond for roughly $455 million with interest that he was ordered to pay the state. The judge stated he would sign off on the New York Attorney General's office proposed judgment, adding Trump's attorney didn't tell him what was incorrect in the state's papers or how his proposal would be different. 
In Georgia, Special Prosecutor Nathan Wade is trying to prevent a judge from questioning his former law partner and divorce lawyer behind closed doors. Defense attorneys consider Terrence Bradley a key witness for a timeline of a relationship between his client and Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis. Wade argued Thursday Bradley should be exempt from private questioning under attorney-client privilege. The judge has said Willis and Wade could both be disqualified from the case if evidence shows an actual conflict of interest or the appearance of one. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Alexander Smirnov, the former FBI informant indicted for lying about an alleged bribery scheme involving President Biden and his family, was rearrested in Nevada yesterday. Smirnov's attorneys say their client was at their Las Vegas office when he was taken into custody on a new warrant for the same charges. This time signed by a federal district judge overseeing the criminal case out of California. Prosecutors have fought to keep Smirnoff behind bars, but a judge released him on several conditions. That included GPS monitoring and the surrender of his passports. Prosecutors allege Smirnoff repeatedly lied to his FBI handler, who he worked with for over a decade. They also claim he has extensive contacts in Russia and that he lied about his access to over $6 million in liquid funds. Special Counsel David Weiss, who is prosecuting the case, said in a court filing Wednesday that Smirnoff was planning to leave on a months-long multi-country foreign trip, two days after arriving in the U.S. Smirnoff is facing up to 25 years in prison if convicted and has not yet entered a plea. Defense attorneys have asked for an emergency hearing in front of the chief judge of the District of Nevada. Stay with us. Three Alabama clinics are pausing in vitro fertilization after the ruling that embryos outside of the womb are children. How political candidates are reacting. Presidential candidate Nikki Haley says a Saturday loss in South Carolina won't push her out of the ring. That's as she makes a last push to rally support in her home state out of tomorrow's primary. Two Republican candidates left in a high-stakes race you don't want to miss. Watch it with us in the action and at the Data Hub on The Nation Decides 2024, the South Carolina primary with Steve Lance and Tiffany Meyer. Live on February 24th at 6 p.m. Eastern on NTD News. Good to have you back. Presidential candidate Nikki Haley rallied supporters in Myrtle Beach yesterday evening. This as her battle with former President Trump for the Republican nomination heads to South Carolina for Saturday's primary. Entity's Daniel Monahan brings us more. During her Thursday night campaign rally, Haley was briefly interrupted by protesters while addressing the crowd. Don't get upset when you see protesters like that because my husband and a lot of men and women in the military sacrifice every day for his right to be able to do that. Haley hammered away at the age of both President Biden and former President Trump, saying the U.S. can do better than two 80-year-old candidates. We all know people over 75 that can run circles around us. And then we know Joe Biden. A loss for Haley in her home state would deal a big blow to her already long odds. This after Trump swept contests in Iowa and New Hampshire. The former president has a commanding lead in state polls. She's governor, but people don't like her too much, and she's hurting the party. But Haley has vowed to press on regardless of Saturday's outcome. 
I am not going anywhere. Some prominent Republicans, including Congressman Byron Donalds, have called on Haley to drop out. At this point, it doesn't matter. That's what I hope. Everybody knows this thing is over. Uh, she should. I think that's what's best for the party um, overall. Senator Tim Scott voted early in the South Carolina primary on Thursday. The senator has been enthusiastically stumping for Trump in his home state ahead of Saturday's primary. Charleston resident and business owner Autumn Galvez says Trump has proven his mettle by continuing to battle despite multiple court cases against him. I think he just has this big effect on Americans. I feel like he just stands up and fights for us no matter what. For Derek Zito, Haley's main appeal besides her youth is that she's not Trump. You know, I don't agree with all of her policies, but I'd rather see her than either Trump or Biden, to be honest. The latest real clear polling averages show Trump with a 25-point lead over Haley in South Carolina. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. With the South Carolina Republican primary coming up this weekend, NTD News will be covering all the action. We have a lot prepared for you, including special guests, on-the-ground coverage, and the Data Hub. Join Steve Lance and Tiffany Meyer on The Nation Decides 2024 live this Saturday, February 24th at 6 p.m. Voters in Georgia are casting their votes during the state's early voting period, which began on February 19th and ends March 8th. In the state's Republican primary, Trump is currently leading. According to data from the polling website 538, Trump has a substantial lead with around 81%, while Haley trails with 17%. But some early voters in Fulton County are not choosing the former president. Here's what they have to say. And we don't need Trump as president because there's nothing but chaos behind him. I think that Donald Trump has um, a lot of attention in the media and people don't understand um, his limitations. And I think that it will undermine our position globally in almost every way. Um, it's important to get my vote out. Um, it's important to get the right president for the United States. In Alabama, there are now three clinics halting in vitro fertilization treatments. This after the state Supreme Court ruled that frozen embryos are children. The case began when three couples had frozen embryos destroyed in an accident at a fertility clinic. The Alabama justices ruled that the couples could sue over the death of a minor child, even for unborn children, quote, regardless of their location. The issue is highlighting the divide between political candidates, President Biden calling the ruling unacceptable and tying it to his promise to make abortion access the law for the whole country. Nikki Haley, meanwhile, said embryos to me are babies, but she also clarified that, quote, you don't want to take those fertility treatments away from women. A Pew Research Center survey last September found that among all women ages 15 to 44, just over 1% reported using artificial insemination or in vitro fertilization. For more on the Alabama decision and what happens next, let's hear, let's hear from Sean Carney. He's a president and CEO of the organization 40 Days for Life. Good morning, Sean. So once again, the heart of the question here, essentially, when do you consider there to be a baby or a child? Uh, let's start with your stance. What's your stance and why? 
Well, I, I think my stance or anyone else's stance is, is irrelevant. Alabama continues to drench itself in common sense and follow not the science, but, but science and the biological reality that life begins at conception and therefore should be protected. Um, I think this is a common sense move. I think it's awesome, uh, particularly in a post-Roe America, uh, that they are protecting these, these embryos. They, they are children, they are babies, they are conceived, and you can't do in vitro fertilization without destroying them. And I think this is a much uh, overdue ethical debate in our country uh, that mm -hmm. Alabama is addressing head on. Right, and there are also other people on the other side that say that an embryo is not yet a baby. It is a chance for someone to have a baby. So what do you think about the differenti differentiation here, or should there be a differentiation between a viable embryo, let's say, and a non-viable em embryo? Well, that's been a very common sense, or not a common sense, but a common argument the last 50 years, is we just say, a ah, 25-week-old baby in utero is not a baby or a 40-week-old embryo is not a baby, or a baby who is born and survives an abortion, they're not a baby. And we can't afford to just move the goal line based on our opinion. We need to follow biology. And our lives begin at conception, not because we think so, not because the Bible tells us, but because biology says that, and we know it. Uh, it was assumed centuries ago. We don't have to assume it. We know that life begins at conception, and our laws should protect that life. So we're seeing now in Alabama that clinics, IVF clinics, have had to halt um, those procedures because, so explain to me your thinking here, because this might potentially, um, if this is written into law, this might potentially inhibit IVF clinics to help conceive new life. A absolutely, and, and, and I think that it should. I, I think that this practice has been um, uh, it, it's, it's guided by the, the great notion that people want children, which is a beautiful and natural desire, but you can't or you ought not create six or seven babies and embryos so that you can keep one. Um, I, I think it's the highlight of the eugenics movement, and it's, 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 a, it's a shady business. It's highly unregulated, and I think that this law is fantastic. The, the fertility industry um, has gotten away with a lot, and they have destroyed thousands of embryos um, in our country. And this is, this is again, highlighting um, fertility treatment, which is always, you know, it tugs at the heart because we want people to be able to have children, but we shouldn't create children uh, to get rid of some of those children and keep some. Oh, I see what you're saying now. So do you have any plans to pursue similar outcomes to that in Alabama in other states? And I know your organization is based in Texas, for instance, right? Yes, and I hope Texas does this. I hope Tennessee does it. Of course, Alabama has abortion ban. There are actually 23 states right now that have abortion bans or, or highly regulate abortion in a post-Roe America compared to seven states who have passed abortion laws. So I think that this is common sense. I really do. And if you if you know that life begins at conception, it would only follow that you would you would protect those embryos. We were all protected at that stage and enjoy life. And, and these children should as well. Well, thank you so much, Sean Carney, for your stance on this. Thank you. Coming up during the California primary elections, voters in San Francisco will also decide on a ballot measure that'll require drug tests for welfare recipients. David Lamb joins us in the studio to discuss this. 
and tens of thousands of cell phone users encountering signal issues yesterday, prompting federal investigations. That and more when we come back. Good to have you back, everyone. Joining us now is NTD's David Lam to give us the latest updates on one of San Francisco's measures against drug use. David, what do you have for us today regarding the city's efforts? Yeah, so San Francisco is facing a big drug crisis, as we know. So the mayor proposed a measure that would reduce people's benefits, welfare benefits, if they were tested positive during the drug screening. So this is for those that are under 65 year, years old and receive cash benefits from the city. Now, fentanyl and um, overdose is a big issue. Nationwide, um, last year, approximately one, and one person every eight minutes would die from an opioid-related death. So in San Francisco, so fentanyl is um, basically the amount that's lethal. It's basically like a pinch mm -hmm. of, um, of fentanyl powder, and that, that's enough to kill a person. So um, the city is trying to tackle that. And on March 5th with the presidential uh, primary election, they also have their local election. And um, one thing is that there is some pushback, unfortunately, from the local union. Oh wow! So yeah, when you, so that now that you mentioned that, because it impacts benefits, as you mentioned as well, right? So I assume that that would not be received well. Tell me more about that. Yeah. So the the union is the uh, Service Employee International uh, Union Local, um, you know, in the Bay Area. So they're saying that because this impacts benefits, the city workers that have to handle this, they would have to go through extra training on top of their regular overtime, and they're already understaffed. Now, on top of that, they, they're anticipating there will be threats from people because these are people who are, they depend on the benefits, and then all of a sudden, you know, they have to tell them, hey, you know, sorry, you, you tested positive. We gotta reduce your benefits, and they, they depend on this. So uh, the union is trying to um, negotiate. Yeah, and while there's so much frustration over this opioid crisis, this fentanyl crisis here, there is a group of addiction treatment professionals in San Francisco, Health Rate 360. They say that Mayor London Breed's proposal will bring undeniable harm. They say it blurs the line between care and punishment, and it undermines their overdose recovery process and their prevention. But Mayor Breed says no more handouts without accountability. And he's, he said that this is the resources that enable this kind of behavior to continue, so he wants to cut it off. But now, what happens next, considering that the city would want to benefit its recipients of welfare while also mitigating drug abuse? Right. Yeah, it is a big issue. I've seen like videos where, you know, unfortunately, there's people that like slumped over and are affected by uh, drug. You know, they're um, overtoxicated. And in person, I've seen that as well. I thought it was just in the videos, but um, and they're in like a zombie-like state. But so what happens next? So this uh, measure is already approved by the supervisors. So uh, voters will just need to vote on it. Now, if it passes, the court would be able to put it on hold. Uh, block it from being enforced because, um, you know, by law, the the uh, the state or the city would have to go through negotiations and what's called good faith, meet and confer with the union until they are able to negotiate, com uh, compromise something. Wow, yeah, very interesting update here. Thank you. But let's move on to a story that created quite a bit of controversy. So, do you have any updates for us um, about a Texas judge, the Texas judge's ruling on hair length? Right, so in hair length, so as you mentioned in Texas, a judge has ruled that school districts can limit the length of a student's hair. The lawsuit came from Daryl George, who is a high school student,
who sued the Barbers Hill Independent School District. Now, George was suspended for seven months over the length of his hair, which is in, was in a dreadlock style because the school district said he violated the dress code. Now, in Texas law, which recently went into effect, it protects against hairstyle discrimination associated with race or culture. The judge ruled yesterday that the law doesn't apply to the length of hair, and I've read that um, they want hair, men's hair, to not ex uh, extend below the eyebrow, earlobes, and the top of the shirt. Wow, interesting. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate your time and your update this morning. David Lam. Yep, thank you. And AT&T said yesterday an outage that disrupted calls and text messages for thousands of U.S. users and prompted federal investigations was not caused by a cyber attack, but a technical error. The carrier blamed the incident on an error in coding without further explanation. AT&T had restored wireless service for all affected customers several hours after an outage that affected more than 70,000 users at its peak. DownDetector.com was a popular website across the country Thursday as it monitored a widespread national outage impacting a number of wireless carriers, with the most occurring on AT&T's network. Some users report waking up to SOS messages. Others had no connection at all, no ability to make calls, send or receive texts, and in several southeastern states on the AT&T network, 911 service was temporarily unavailable over the past two days. The highest number of AT&T outages were reported across the Midwest, Southeast, and in Texas, according to downdetector.com. Thursday morning, downdetector.com showed just under 2,000 outages reported on T-Mobile's network. Verizon also said it was operating normally after peaking at just over 4,000 outages in the morning. Public safety experts say wireless network outages often occur for mundane reasons, like construction-related digging or software issues. And the manslaughter trial for Rust film armorer Hannah Gutierrez started yesterday. Prosecutors called the weapon supervisor's work sloppy and unprofessional in opening statements. They allege she would skip firearm safety checks. She's also accused of bringing live rounds on set. Prosecutors claim she's responsible for the death of cinematographer Helena Hutchins due to negligence. Hutchins was killed during rehearsal on set after the prop gun held by actor Alec Baldwin went off, killing her and wounding the movie's director. Defense lawyers say Gutierrez is being used as a scapegoat. Her attorneys blame Baldwin for failing to follow common sense gun safety rules and the movie's production team for creating a chaotic and unsafe environment. Baldwin is separately fighting a charge of involuntary manslaughter. An FBI and independent test of the revolver found it wouldn't fire without the trigger being pulled. Baldwin previously said he only pulled the gun's hammer back. The trial is set to run until the first week of March. Over 40 witnesses could be called. Gutierrez has pleaded not guilty. Yeah, certainly one of those uh, trials that has a world holding their breath and all the attention. Right, yes. And we're going to move over to NVIDIA. It saw a meteoric rise in stock value as well as demand for its advanced AI chips. We take a look at the historic amount of profits from the tech company. Google pauses Gemini's ability to generate images. That's after the AI chatbot was accused of racial bias. That and more coming up.
Thanks for staying with us. And we have Entity Business host Don Ma with us now to give us the up latest updates from the business world. Let's hear it, Dan. Okay, so a few topics to go through today, and I wanted to start off with the biggest news, I think, uh, at, at least, uh, NVIDIA. So it's having an incredible earnings report, it seems like. Uh, so yes, uh, yesterday we saw that uh, the company's profits grew to nearly $12.3 billion in the three months ending in January. Now, get this, this is a gain of 700 and 69% year over year. And this result helped bring the company's full year profits up more than 580% uh, from the year earlier. And this is just incredible. I mean, if you ask anybody, uh, the company gained $277 billion in value uh, yesterday. Uh, this is uh, Wall Street's largest one day gain in history. Nvidia shares were up 16% at market close yesterday. S&P 500 and Dow Jones Industrial Average both surged to a record close uh, yesterday, uh, partly due to because of NVIDIA, and as well as uh, investors piling into technology stocks. Traders uh, exchanged $65 billion worth of NVIDIA's shares on Thursday, accounting for almost a fifth of all trading in S&P 500 stocks. And uh, so, you know, if you're asking me if you have a 401k or anything else uh, invested in the stock market, yesterday potentially maybe a very good, good day for you. NVIDIA says that demand for its uh, advanced AI chips continue to exceed supply. So looking good here. Right, yeah, looks like AI, certainly many people believe in that is the future. So let's, talking about AI though, after Google's chatbot, Gemini went viral, we talked about it and not for the best reasons. There have been some updates. Yes, uh, so uh, I talked to you about this yesterday, but a quick update. Uh, today, Google is pausing its artificial intelligence tool, Gemini's ability to generate images of people. And of course, this was after it was blasted on social media for producing uh, racially inaccurate images, as I talked to you about it yesterday. And uh, this was showing people of color uh, in place of white people. And Google said in a post on X yesterday that uh, they're working to address the recent issues with uh, Gemini's image generation feature. And uh, while they do this, they will pause uh, the image generation of people and will re-release an improved version very soon. Uh, so it seems like this blunder is showing how AI tools still uh, struggle with the concept of race. Uh, OpenAI's DALI image generator, for example, has taken heat for perpetuating harmful racial and ethnic stereotypes at scale. Uh, and Google's attempt to overcome this, however, appears to have backfired and made it difficult for the AI chatbot to generate images of white people. And Gemini, like other AI tools like ChatGPT, is trained on vast troves of online data. And experts have long warned that AI tools, uh, therefore, have the potential to replicate the racial and gender uh, biases uh, take, uh, baked into that information. Right, and Don, a product director for Gemini at Google, said that they take representation and bias very seriously. There's another big hit for tech companies in Florida. Tell us what's happening there. Okay, so on that front, seems like uh, the Florida House easily passed legislation yesterday, creating some of the strictest social media rules in the US. Now the bill cuts off kids 
under the age of 16 from using many platforms. And both chambers have passed the bill now, so Governor Ron DeSantis may be forced to uh, make a decision very soon, even though he has some concerns over the bill. He has uh, about two weeks to either sign or veto it before lawmakers leave on break. And DeSantis' main issue with the bill actually is parents not having a say in whether their children should be allowed on social media. Lawmakers aren't really willing to compromise, even though the governor has uh, threatened to veto the bill. The measure would ban anyone under 16 from creating an account and mandates the use of third-party age verification services. And as well, social media companies would have to terminate accounts for users under 16 in Florida. And those who don't follow the rules uh, seems like will actually be fined. Wow, yeah. So with parents that would lose their say in it. I'm curious to see if DeSantis will actually sign that, but then even if he did, you know, it's questionable how that would be um, executed. Also, one last thing for today, Don, for you. There was a cyber attack that happened yesterday. Can you fill us in on that? Right. Uh, so, yeah, pharmacies across the country were having trouble, it seems like, yesterday, uh, processing some prescriptions because of that cyber attack uh, that you mentioned. A United Health disclosed a cyber attack in a regulatory filing with the Securities and Exchange Commission yesterday. The company says that the cyber attack was against its ch change healthcare business, which uh, processes insurance prescriptions for uh, tens of thousands of pharmacies nationwide. United Health says it became aware of the cyber attack on Wednesday, actually. They expect it to last through at least Thursday, and the company says that it has isolated the attack and is working to restore its systems. Law enforcement has also been notified. Hopefully it doesn't happen today. Right, yeah, well, and CVS told Fox News that their CVS health systems have not been damaged by that. There's no indication of that. Don Ma, host of NTD Business, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Don. Stay with us, a restoration 250 years in the making. Workers are busy as bees restoring part of St. Peter's Basilica before next year's Jubilee. Penguin Pals in action. A sighted penguin helps a visually impaired friend to get her food every day. The heartwarming story coming up. Good to have you back. Restoration of the monumental canopy over the main altar of St. Peter's Basilica began at the Vatican this week. It marks the first comprehensive work on the 10-story tall canopy in 250 years. Workers at the St. Peter's Basilica in Rome began the enormous job of restoring the almost 30-foot-high canopy over the main altar. They're currently erecting the scaffolding to allow church celebrations to go on uninterrupted. The canopy is a symbolic protection of the tomb of St. Peter underneath. We can say that today the restoration of the Baldachin has begun. We are a few days away from the actual start, but we are now close to the Baldachin sky, which is our first level of approach to the very complex provisional work that we saw in the Basilica. The massive renovation job is long overdue. It's been over two centuries since the last major one. The workers are under deadline to have the job done by 2025, in time for the church's jubilee year. The restoration will end by the end of November 2024, so it will be ready for renewed splendor for the jubilee year. The intervention is a preparatory restoration to a preservation that we will hope will last for another 200 years. But in fact, the last major restoration was done 250 years ago. The canopy dates back to the 1620s to 1630s, 
when Pope Urban VIII commissioned Baroque architect Gian Lorenzo Bernini to create the canopy for the Apostle's tomb. The baldachin is considered one of the most complicated multi-material artworks of all time. The object is made up of many materials, the stone, the marble of the bases, four bases of two and a half meters, and the twisted bronze and gold columns. Besides giving the massive structure a good cleaning, many other tasks need to be done. Cleaning is the first of our objectives. As for the metals, bronze and the gold obviously, after cleaning, there is also, especially for the gold, the verification of its adhesion, of the gold's condition, and of the gold leafing itself. The job promises to keep workers as busy as the bees enshrined throughout the work. The restoration will rely on the expertise of the Vatican Museum's restorers. There will be up to 12 of them working on the structure at any given time. And a quick change of topics, a story of feathered friendship at Britain's bird world. Feeding time is difficult for a penguin named Squid who is partially sighted. But she has help from her best friend, a penguin called Penguin, who guides her to the feud. A remarkable relationship is developing. Meet Squid, she's a three-year-old African penguin who has only partial sight. Squid developed cataracts, which clouded the lenses of her eyes at six weeks old. She's often disoriented due to her poor eyesight, but she's developed a special friendship with Penguin, a male penguin who guides Squid to her food at mealtime. He acts as her eyes. She waits for things to get going and calm down a little bit, and then she comes and she'll stand right next to Penguin, and that's um, pretty much a daily thing. Penguin has had his share of difficulties too. He struggled to fit in after being hand-raised, after facing an unknown illness. He was heavily dependent on keepers. But simultaneously, they have overcome challenges and become an inseparable duo. For now, it's a touching friendship between Penguin pals. But could love be in the air for these two? They're both absolute opposites, so <laughs> we won't know for another year or two. Bird World is one of the UK's largest bird parks. It's home to over 150 species of birds, with 40% of them facing extinction. They are currently breeding eight different species of endangered birds. So cute, and no better wingman. Yes, yeah, lend a helping hand, or in this case, a flipper. Oh yeah, there we go. All right, uh, stay tuned for another minute and we'll, head come, we'll come back to the second part of our broadcast. NTD News, the fastest growing independent news source in America, bringing you breaking news from around the world, expert analysis, investigative reporting, and original award-winning documentaries. We're known for our uncensored China coverage you won't find anywhere else. We cover the stories that affect you and shape our world without the political noise. We report from the heart with you in mind. Watch us right here on NTD News. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are our top stories. One of the country's largest conservative conferences is underway as prominent Republican figures take the stage. What they're highlighting as the top issues this election year. Presidential candidate Nikki Haley says the U.S. can do better than two 80-year-old candidates. Trump 77 for the record. That's as she makes a last push in South Carolina to rally support ahead of tomorrow's primary. 
the first American spacecraft to land on the moon in over 50 years, the feat achieved by the private sector for the first time ever. But it wasn't all smooth sailing. A last-minute glitch threatened to doom a safe touchdown. A judge denies former President Trump's request for a delay on a $355 million civil fraud judgment, and Trump asks for his classified documents case to be dismissed. The latest in the top GOP candidates' ongoing court battles. The U.S. and the U.K. issuing a new round of sanctions against Russia-linked targets. That's as the war in Ukraine approaches the two-year mark. If state governments had balanced budgets, would that benefit you financially? We speak to an economist about his plan to help create a positive cycle, surpluses, economic growth, lower taxes, repeat. And a sly fox steals a phone from right underneath an animal rescuer's nose. See the act caught on camera. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome everyone and happy Friday. Today is February 23rd. In today's top news, Russia will be hit with more sanctions today as a war in Ukraine enters its third year and in the wake of Alexei Navalny's death. The U.S. is seeking to hold Russia responsible for these developments. It announced actions yesterday taken in partnership with other countries. The Deputy Treasury Secretary said the U.S. will impose sanctions on over 500 targets today. The package covers elements linked to Moscow's defense industrial base and sources of revenue for the Russian economy that power its war machine. On the same day, the U.K. said they'll sanction more than 50 individuals and entities to put economic pressure on Russia. The UK's foreign secretary said the sanctions are, quote, starving Putin of the resources he desperately needs. The European Union on Wednesday approved its own package of sweeping sanctions banning nearly 200 entities and individuals accused of aiding Moscow. And four people have been charged in transporting suspected Iranian-made weapons on a vessel that was, was intercepted by U.S. forces in the Arabian Sea last month. This is the same operation in which two Navy SEALs died. A criminal complaint unsealed yesterday alleges that four people with Pakistani ID cards were transporting missile components for the type of weapons used by Houthis rebels. U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland pledged to use the full authority of the Justice Department to, quote, hold accountable those who facilitate the flow of weapons from Iran to Houthi forces. Muhammad Palawan is facing the bulk of the charges. Three others were also charged with providing false information. U.S. officials said Navy SEAL Christopher Chambers slipped and fell while trying to board the intercepted bo boat on January 11th. Another SEAL, Nathan Gage Ingram, dove in after him. Both died in the operation. And this year's Conservative Political Action Conference, or CPAC, kicking off yesterday with prominent figures like former President Trump and South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem slated to address crowds over the four-day event. The event is streaming live on our website at NTD.com. NTD's Jack Bradley is in Maryland to tell us more about day one of the event. I'm here at CPAC where 
Thousands are gathering here just outside of D.C. to listen to conservative thought leaders and activists about issues that matter most to them. Now, those issues include energy and immigration is a huge one, but everything relates to the 2024 election. Um, we heard from many conservative thought leaders today. Let's listen to some of that now. Our justice system has been weaponized against the administration's top political competitor with absurd witch hunts from every corner of the country. It reminds me of the old Soviet slogan, you show me the man and I will find you the crime. If we want to compete and win, we must embrace early voting. The days of waiting until election day to vote are over. We have to encourage everyone who can legally vote to go do so as soon as they legally can. We need so many votes banked for Donald J. Trump that we're not playing catch up on election day. Now, many, many other activists and, and um, conservative leaders are going to be speaking here at CPAC over the course of the next few days here. On Saturday, everyone's looking forward to Donald Trump speaking. It's the same day as the South Carolina primary where he's leading Nikki Haley in the polls by a wide margin. Now, Nikki Haley was a headliner here at CPAC last year. This year, no show. Now, we have a lot to look forward to. Many other conservative activists are going to be speaking here, including potential running mates that Trump has mentioned, including Christy Nome, uh, J.D. Vance, Elise Stefanik, Vivek Ramaswamy, uh, many others. And now we have a lot to look forward to. Up until Saturday, we'll be here to bring you the latest. Back to you. And for more updates on what's happening at CPAC, we hear from Drew Allen, the author of America's Last Stand and the host of the Drew Allen Show podcast. Drew, thank you for joining us. What were some of the cultural issues that were a main focus on day one of the conference? Well, the cultural issue, certainly immigration, is, is was hinted on hinted at there, uh, is a really, really big one. That's significant to the country uh, and actually foreign policy. Uh, the fact that we're looking at so many uh, potential wars, we're looking at, at what's going on throughout the Middle East, we're looking at uh, the Russia conflict in Ukraine now. These are big issues. Tulsi Gabbard talked about those uh, last night, as a matter of fact. Yeah, and you touch on international topics here. The president of El Salvador, Nayib Bukele, sent a warning to the U.S. saying the next president needs to fight against what he called dark forces tearing down the U.S. that are similar to what his country went through. Can you elaborate on those forces and former President Trump's track record on combating them? Yeah, great point, because look, there are there's an international community here. There are people here from Asia. There are world leaders uh, from around the world actually coming to CPEC, and, and, and they all understand that what we're facing in America is the same thing we're facing throughout the world. And it is, it is totalitarianism fundamentally. That is what all of these countries are looking at. It is about the rights of the citizens, what our relationship is and should be with the government. And of course, in America, we're unique because of our constitution and our founding documents, right? That say we the people are master and those in government are servant. And that's been switched. And so not just here in America, but elsewhere. So, you know, we're not the, I mean, we're the leaders of the free world, if you will. But right now it's existential, the nature of this election and, and what our decisions are in terms of how our relationship is going to be with our government going forward. And other countries are, are, are looking at their problems and they're the same. Right. And Drew, President Bukele, he cited declining cities and justice systems and corrupt politicians as part of his warning there. Is there any word at CPAC as to who former President Trump would choose to be his running mate? Well, you know, it's kind of funny. In, in many ways, 
Uh, everyone understands now Trump's going to be the nominee, and it's kind of like a decision about who the VP should be. That's kind of what CPAC's about in some ways. So look, Tulsi's here. Uh, she's on the short list. Uh, Trump mentioned with, with Laura Ingram recently, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, uh, uh, Byron, uh, congressman uh, from Florida. So um, yeah, there's, there's murmurings, but all of those people, people seem to like. And I think it's interesting because we have a deep bench. I mean, there's a lot of pros for all of the people that have made it on a short list right now. Uh, but Tulsi, again, you know, a former Democrat that's come over and, and, and is looking to be be very, very useful to saving the country. She was treated like a rock star. People love her. Um, and I got to see her last night as well. And, and, and we'll see. I'm very excited about what the future holds. Okay, so some headlines ask CPAC or TPAC, referencing Trump's dominance over the gathering. Is that an accurate assessment? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I'm laughing. It's good. I mean, yeah, it kind of is TPAC. I mean, I think it's okay. Uh, we've got we're in an election year, and it's very, it's 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 a it's MAGA here at CPAC. You know, I mean, look, uh, um, Nikki Haley is not coming to CPAC. Okay, she's she refuses to 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 you know get out of the race right now. Um, she's not here, but other VP options are coming in. So yes, it is. It's fine. It's it's you know kind of the the the, the coronation in some ways, if you will. Look. We've had challengers to Trump, and obviously his poll numbers didn't change. He's winning. It's, it's clear that he's going to be the nominee. So, yeah, it, absolutely. I mean, this is, it, you can call it TPAC. I have no problem with that. I love it, actually. Drew Allen, author of America's Last Stand and host of the Drew Allen Show podcast, thank you. Thank you. Presidential candidate Nikki Haley rallied supporters in Myrtle Beach yesterday evening. This as her battle with former President Trump for the Republican nomination heads to South Carolina for Saturday's primary. Entity's Daniel Monahan brings us more. During her Thursday night campaign rally, Haley was briefly interrupted by protesters while addressing the crowd. Don't get upset when you see protesters like that because my husband and a lot of men and women in the military sacrifice every day for his right to be able to do that. Haley hammered away at the age of both President Biden and former President Trump, saying the U.S. can do better than two 80-year-old candidates. We all know people over 75 that can run circles around us. And then we know Joe Biden. A loss for Haley in her home state would deal a big blow to her already long odds. This after Trump swept contests in Iowa and New Hampshire. The former president has a commanding lead in state polls. She's governor, but people don't like her too much, and she's hurting the party. But Haley has vowed to press on regardless of Saturday's outcome. I am not going anywhere. Some prominent Republicans, including Congressman Byron Donalds, have called on Haley to drop out. At this point, it doesn't matter. That's what I hope. Everybody knows this thing is over. Uh, she should. I think that's what's best for the party um, overall. Senator Tim Scott voted early in the South Carolina primary on Thursday. The senator has been enthusiastically stumping for Trump in his home state ahead of Saturday's primary. Charleston resident and business owner Autumn Galvez says Trump has proven his mettle by continuing to battle despite multiple court cases against him. I think he just has this big effect on Americans. I feel like he just stands up and fights for us no matter what. I think, you know, for Derek Zito, Haley's main appeal besides her youth is that she's not Trump. You know, I don't agree with all of her policies, but I would rather see her than either Trump or Biden, to be honest. The 
latest Real Clear polling averages show Trump with a 25-point lead over Haley in South Carolina. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Just ahead, does limiting government spending create more liberty and more money for you? An economist says yes. Hear his plan to help states achieve balanced budgets and foster economic growth. The first American spacecraft to land on the moon in over 50 years. The feat achieved by the private sector for the first time ever. But it wasn't all smooth sailing. A last minute glitch threatened to doom a safe touchdown. In the UK, a sly fox snatches an animal rescuer's phone. It's all caught on video. See it here on NTD News when we come back. Two Republican candidates left in a high-stakes race you don't want to miss. Watch it with us in the action and at the Data Hub on The Nation Decides 2024, the South Carolina primary with Steve Lance and Tiffany Meyer. Live on February 24th at 6 p.m. Eastern on NTD News. Welcome back. Former President Trump is asking a federal judge to dismiss his Mar-a-Lago classified documents case. Trump's legal team filed four motions last night. Defense attorneys argued Trump is protected by presidential immunity and that the charges in special counsel lack legitimacy. Trump's former property manager at Mar-a-Lago is also asking a judge to dismiss charges. Entities Jeremy Sandberg has the latest in Trump's legal cases. Defense attorneys accuse Attorney General Merrick Garland of appointing special counsel Jack Smith improperly. Trump's team argues the appointment clause of the Constitution does not afford an attorney general the power to appoint without Senate confirmation, quote, a private citizen and like-minded political ally to wield the prosecutorial power of the U.S. Lawyers for Trump's former property manager, Carlos D. Oliveira, asked the judge Thursday to dismiss charges against him, claiming their client did not knowingly obstruct justice when he helped move boxes at Mar-a-Lago. His attorneys in a court filing say he didn't know what was in the boxes or that the Justice Department was investigating. Meanwhile, the judge overseeing the $355 million civil fraud case has denied Trump's request to delay judgment for a month. Judge Engerin stated in an email Thursday, Trump's lawyers had failed to explain, much less justify, any basis for a stay and wrote, I am confident that the appellate division will protect your appellate rights. Once the judgment is entered, we'll start a 30-day clock for Trump to appeal. Trump will need to put up cash or post bond for roughly $455 million with interest that he was ordered to pay the state. The judge stated he would sign off on the New York Attorney General's office proposed judgment, adding Trump's attorney didn't tell him what was incorrect in the state's papers or how his proposal would be different. In Georgia, Special Prosecutor Nathan Wade is trying to prevent a judge from questioning his former law partner and divorce lawyer behind closed doors. Defense attorneys consider Terrence Bradley a key witness for a timeline of a relationship between his client and Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis. Wade argued Thursday Bradley should be exempt from private questioning under attorney-client privilege. The judge has said Willis and Wade could both be disqualified from the case if evidence shows an actual conflict of interest or the appearance of one. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Let's talk about local economies. Are the budgets of state governments balanced? And if they were, would that put more money in your pocket? We explore these questions with Vance Ginn, the president of Ginn Economic Consulting, who partnered with Americans for Tax Reform to publish the Sustainable Budget Project. Check it out. 
Hey, it's a pleasure to be with you today, Kevin. The Sustainable Budget Project is one that's put on by the Americans for Tax Reform. Uh, you can find it on their website, atr.org forward slash budget project. And it goes through what would budgets look like if they didn't increase by more than population growth plus inflation, which is a good measure of the average taxpayer's ability to pay for government spending, because every dollar the government spends has to come out of our taxes, out of the productive private sector. So we need less of that. And we've seen too much spending at the federal level, which is creating, you know, contributing to all of our inflationary pressures. And we're seeing it too much at the state level. And that's what this whole project is really about, is to rein that in so more money can be in the pockets of Americans. How can states set a responsible budget? And then how does that translate into people's actual bottom lines? Well, it's a great question, Kevin. I think what we're looking at here is the spending. Um, there's only been six states over the last decade that have kept their budget within population growth plus inflation. Um, those are mostly red states, <laughs> you might imagine that, like Texas and Wyoming and North Dakota. But even the blue state of Colorado has done a good job because of spending limits that it's been put in place over time. It could always be better, of course. Uh, but I think by doing that and limiting government spending, it provides more opportunity for surpluses and more revenue to come in because of more economic growth and those surpluses can then be used to buy down tax rates especially income tax rates and others um, to hopefully eliminate income taxes so what does that mean that means more growth and more money in, po in the pockets of americans and i think if the federal government did this as well we'd have more sustainable budgets and we wouldn't have to worry about so much inflationary pressure that's hitting households across the country so vance we got the inflation report out it's at about 3.1 percent is that the target where should we be right now yeah, the inflation report was hotter than expected today, 3.1% growth year over year of the cost of a basket of goods and services. And if you exclude food and energy, which we all buy, but they're more volatile, that was up 3.9%. And the Federal Reserve would like the inflation rate to be closer to 2%. So we're almost 100% or twice as fast as inflation is growing than what the Federal Reserve would like. So my guess is, is that they won't be cutting interest rates anytime soon. Um, they say maybe not until May, it might even be later than that. And so we're seeing the stock market could also pull back because that means higher interest rates, higher cost of capital than what they were expecting. And I think we're going to see higher inflation until the Federal Reserve really starts to cut its balance sheet, Kevin. And, and unfortunately, they're not doing it fast enough at this time. So I think we're going to keep seeing higher inflation. Well, it's great hearing your update from you and also more on that sustainable budget project that you have going on. Van Skin, president of Ginn Economic Consulting. Thank you. Thank you, Kevin. And big news in space exploration, the first U.S. moon landing since 1972, a spacecraft built and flown by Texas-based company Intuitive Machines landed near the south pole of the moon yesterday evening. And today's Daniel Monahan has more on the lunar touchdown, the first ever achieved by the private sector. The six-legged robot lander, dubbed Odysseus, touched down at around 6.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Today, for the first time in more than a half century, the U.S. has returned to the moon. Ignition and liftoff. The landing, one day after the spacecraft reached lunar orbit and a week after its launch from Florida, was confirmed by signals beamed back nearly 240,000 miles to mission control. Mission director Tim Crane reacts. What we can confirm, without a doubt, is our equipment is on the surface of the moon and we are transmitting. Communication with the vehicle took several minutes to re-establish, and the initial signal was faint, leaving mission control uncertain as to the precise condition and position of the lander. The spacecraft was not designed to provide live video of the event, 
touchdown came after an 11th hour glitch with the spacecraft's autonomous navigation system that required engineers on the ground to employ a workaround solution. They had to deploy an experimental instrument from NASA, which was already on board. Three, two, one, engine ignition. Odysseus lifted off on February 15th atop a two-stage Falcon 9 rocket flown by Elon Musk's SpaceX. NASA Administrator Bill Nelson called Odysseus taking the moon a triumph. Congratulations to everyone involved in this great and daring quest at Intuitive Machines, SpaceX, and right here at NASA. The vehicle is carrying a suite of scientific instruments and technology demonstrations for NASA and several commercial customers. The equipment is designed to operate for seven days on solar energy before the sun sets over the polar landing site. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. NASA's Solar Dynamics Observatory captured images of the sun emitting a strong solar flare yesterday. Imagery shared by NASA showed the flare, which is seen as a bright flash in the upper left part of the sun. NASA says these solar flares are intense releases of energy from the sun. They can impact radio communications, electric power grids, navigation signals, and pose risks to spacecraft and astronauts. The flare from yesterday is an X-class flare, which are said to be the most intense, according to NASA. And maybe you've heard the old expression, sly as a fox? An animal rescue worker in England found out there may be some truth to the saying. A worker from the UK's Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, or RSPCA, captured this footage. He was called in to help an injured fox. He set up his phone to record the action at the scene. But another fox had a different idea. It watched the phone being set up, then grabbed it and ran off before dropping it in nearby bushes. According to the RSPCA, the injured animal was successfully rescued and received the necessary treatment. So glad that he got the treatment he needs, but there is one question that remains. What was that fox planning to do with that phone? I know, right? Phone a fox? Oh. I knew there was a joking coming. I should have known. All right. We're wrapping up our show here, but we'll keep you updated with the latest information. Stay tuned for our News Today broadcast at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.